Um, about three Christmases ago, I was taking a carol service, speaking at a carol service at Sunbridge Road Chapel in uh, Bradford. And before I spoke, they had a testimony. I wasn't interviewing or anything. It was a lady I, I, I've known for a number of years, and she gave a testimony. She was brought up in Ceausescu's Romania. Ceausescu, Nicolae Ceausescu, was the totalitarian, authoritarian, nasty piece of work dictator in Romania. They reckon he personally ordered to death 60,000 people. If he didn't like anybody, he'd just say, take them away, and they'd never be seen again. It was an awful regime. In 1989, communism basically collapsed in Eastern Europe. Ceausescu and his wife, uh, Elena, were executed on Christmas Day. But before 1989, this lady told us her story of how she came to faith. She was brought up in an atheistic, communistic country, but she came to faith. And it was a lovely story. And then she told a little bit about her Christian life in Romania, and then communism collapsed, and eventually she came to the UK. She got married here uh, to a Christian, and she's done really well spiritually. She works in the civil service. In fact, she's quite high up in the civil service. And then at the end, she said this. But for me to witness to my colleagues at work today is much more costly and much harder than it ever was to witness in Ceausescu's Romania. That's what she said. Just a little while ago, a few weeks ago, I spent a week in Oxford, had a, a, a wonderful, wonderful mission there with um, St. Ebbs Headington. It was a very blessed week altogether. And of course, I did some of the big sights of, of Oxford and stood at Martyr's Memorial, this huge memorial for Ridley and Latimer and Cramner and then just around the corner there's a spot in the middle of the, the main road, Broad Street, where they were actually burned at the stake because of their principles. Night by night I interviewed people, but on the Sunday they had one or two locals not being interviewed by me, just quickly sharing their testimony. And there was a Christian GP they brought into the service to give her testimony. She's a very well-known Christian GP and um, a delightful, vivacious, clever woman and one of the questions they asked when they were talking with her you become a Christian how does being a Christian impact you as a GP and her immediate response was I never say anything about my Christianity at work to my colleagues or my patients I don't want to be struck off Something is happening in our country, and we've touched on it from Peter, but we've touched on it from other, one or two of the other sessions as well, which is new to us, but it's not actually new to the majority of Christians throughout the world and throughout the 2,000 years of church history. And that's why I thought, as you did, Peter, that let's go to Acts chapter 4 as a sort of basis of our thinking. And what I want to do is see what happened to them and what their response was, and then I want to move on from that as to what's happening to us and how we should respond learning from them. That's, that's what I want to do this afternoon. So I think we know the story. We've already had it outlined that Peter and John were arrested. They had been preaching and they'd healed this man who'd been crippled for so many years and they were imprisoned. I have been into prison just to take chapel services and I once visited one man in a cell and I, as I think I mentioned, 
I, I almost I live with a little bit of sort of background fear. It's not dominant, but nevertheless, it's, it's there in my mind, a fear of ever going to prison. I just don't know that I could cope with it. I, I just think it's so awful. And I know there are people like John Phillips, etc., regularly going into prisons and, and meeting people. I, I just don't know that I could be a prisoner. I don't know what I would do. Interesting for them, Peter and John, the opposition was coming to them because of the gospel, despite all the evidence. A man had been healed. Christianity was spreading. People were being transformed. They could see that they were not trying to turn the government upside down. But nevertheless, they were arrested and imprisoned. Hard-hearted men were intent on protecting their own interests as religious, as political leaders. And yet it was undeniable that a miracle had taken place. But somehow the power of that miracle didn't get through to them. Campbell Morgan he was the um, predecessor of Martin Lloyd-Jones at Westminster Chapel. And most of his works now are out of print, but if you can find them in uh, second-hand bookshops, it's great reading, is, is Campbell Morgan. It's very stimulating, it's challenging to the mind, but it's very insightful. Campbell Morgan said about these guys who were imprisoning Peter and John and quizzing them, granted the truth of the first verse of the Bible... In the beginning, God created, etc. Granted the, tr- first, the truth of the first verse of the Bible, there really is no difficulty with miracles. Now, these were religious leaders. So a man's healed from being a cripple. Is that a big thing compared with he spoke and said, let there be light, and all this was, was brought into it? No, it's nothing, is it? Now, to be fair to them as well, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 13, first two verses, um, The the people of God were told that if something new um, was being spoken, even if apparently amazing things were happening, they should nevertheless see, does it tie up with the word of God? And so you could argue that Sanhedrin were only obeying ancient instructions that were given to themselves long, long ago. But it's clear their attitude wasn't just that. They wanted to suppress this new message that was spreading Now, as Peter and John were being questioned in the courts, the people were astonished at first the courage of Peter and John, but also they took note, the Bible says, that they had been with Jesus. I love the fact that it's past tense because actually they were still with him or he was with them. So really they should have taken note that they were with Jesus still. But the fact that they'd been with Jesus, that that was impressive and their courage incredibly um, uh, impressive as well. Now, it comes to a sort of climax in this first part of chapter 4 in verses 17 and 18 but in order that it may not spread any further among the people let us warn them to speak no more to any man in this name and when they'd summoned them I'd love to know how Dr. Luke knew that that's what was going on in the discussion behind closed doors is this simply the inspiration of the Holy Spirit or was there an insider was there somebody, you know, say, hey, guess what happened, you know. I, I, I'd love to know, but we don't know. But they discussed and decided the best thing is that we will silence them. Verse 18, and when they'd summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. They made impossible demands. Well, not only on these two, but really they were saying it to the Christian community. Now, we're not there yet, are we? But there's almost a sort of sense 
that, that that sort of command is coming our way. I've talked to many Christians over the last five years who said, do you know, I think one day I may well end up in prison. Somebody said that to me last week. He's not particularly a bold witness, but he thinks everything's stacked against us at the moment. Now, we must be careful. You know, we can become um, paranoid unnecessarily. And our times are in God's hands. He knows what he's doing. But nevertheless, it came to them. It's come to Christians over the centuries. And it's happening to Christians now in various parts of the world. Who knows? So what was their response? Well, the threats of the Sanhedrin, the religious, the political leaders, simply fell on deaf ears. A premature death did not frighten these people. The thought of imprisonment didn't scare them. I love the fact, of course, that later on the Apostle Paul on a number of occasions called himself the prisoner of the Lord. He could very easily, couldn't he, have said, I'm a prisoner of this rotten Roman guard or a prisoner of Caesar. But he doesn't see it like that. I'm a prisoner of the Lord. In other words, the Lord has got me where I am. Because prison walls don't take away the freedom and the fellowship and the future that every Christian has in Christ. Whatever happens in a prison, they cannot deprive us of the relationship which we have with the living God. And if we're to believe the people of the, people of the likes of Richard Vermbrand and many others, maybe not everyone, but many others who've been imprisoned for their faith, it does seem that in a very special way the Lord gives a sense of his presence and his strength and even his joy and his purpose whilst they've been in prison. Doesn't the Lord Jesus speak and say that rather than fear the person who can destroy the body... We're to fear the one who could destroy body and soul. In other words, our prime fear, and you know what I mean by that, is not towards men, but towards God. But I'd just like to underline that after what we've heard from Peter this morning. Our fear primarily is to be towards the Lord. They, these people, had to obey God rather than men. Now, what did they do when they were warned? They spoke to the very people who threatened them and said, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men whereby we must be saved. Okay, it's pretty straight, isn't it? All right, I mustn't say any more or teach anything about the Lord Jesus. Oh, just a minute. Can I just say, it's a wonderful moment. They just come out with it. They, they blurt it out. Salvation is not going to be found anywhere else outside of Jesus. Can I just have a little a sort of footnote here? It's, it's not to do with the text or the theme, but it's something that happened to me about three, four years ago, and it made a huge impact, and I think it's very helpful. I was preaching in Harold Wood, St. Peter's Church, Harold Wood, and I don't know what I said, but afterwards, a guy came up to me, um, Vijay Menon, his name, a converted Hindu, and uh, he's about my height. He is a bit bit large, in fact, anyway, and um, uh, he's a little bit larger than me, and he just, uh, he put his arm around me, and he just said this, he said, Roger, you do know, don't you, that all religions lead to God? Well, I know this guy to be quite sound, so I said, go on, and he has a mischievous glint in his eye always as well, go on, I said, he said, yes, of course, all religions lead to God, the only thing is, that all other religions outside of Jesus lead to God on the throne of judgment. Only Jesus leads to God on the throne of grace. 
He actually then went on to say, it's not quite as, as useful, but he went on to say, the trouble is as Christians, we only quote John 14, verse 6, part A. And the way, the truth, and the life. But he says, it goes on, no one can come to the Father but by me. In other words, the Muslim, the Buddhist, the Sikh, the Jehovah's Witness, the Roman Catholic, the atheist, they're all on a journey that will lead to God as the judge. Only the Christian is on a journey that is going to lead to God welcoming us. He's our father and we're his sons and daughters. That is very helpful because if you're saying to a university crowd or something like, only Christianity leads to God, it sounds wrong somehow. It's always jarred with you when I said that sort of thing. And it is wrong. Everyone's moving towards God, but we're going to meet God and be welcomed. Anyway, having said that to the Sanhedrin, they then said, judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. All right. So they've been warned. They've been threatened. They're trying to be silenced. They speak what they can in that opportunity and share something of the Lord Jesus and then say, we have to, we have to honour and obey God. I then want you to notice what happens next because I think this is part of the response that we should follow, but we can easily neglect. They went back to their fellow believers and they prayed with them. Verse 24, look at it. They prayed to the God of creation. And when they'd heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is thou who didst make the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. They spoke to the God of creation. You made. Then, verse 25, they spoke to the God of revelation. Who, by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, thy servant, did say, sorry, I'm reading from the American standard, as I mentioned, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? So, you made, verse 24, verse 25, you spoke. And then thirdly, they spoke to, they prayed to the God of salvation, verses 27 and 28, you decided, you decided. They prayed... Now, their prayers are very interesting because they didn't pray, if you look at verse 29, um, uh, that, that, that God would, as it were, remove the trouble that they were in. They didn't say, deal with these people who were trying to silence us. They did pray, verse 29, that God would consider their threats. And they did pray, in 29 verse part B, that they would speak with more boldness. Now, Peter mentioned this. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your, your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. They wanted more boldness. And then verse 30, they prayed that God would miraculously stretch out his hand and do signs and wonders. And their prayer was answered. The place was shaken. Now actually you'd think in this situation they would be the ones shaken. But no, 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 no. They prayed. They prayed for the Holy Spirit to do miraculous things. The place was shaken. Then we read they were filled with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. You'd think they'd be filled with fear. But no, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And then they spoke boldly. You'd think they'd be silenced. But no, they didn't. They, they prayed. The place was shaken. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke 
boldly. We don't actually get any indication about the miracles being answered, but we do get the, the indication that people were converted as they spoke boldly. They didn't pray for the removal of the threats or the removal of the enemies, but that the believers might speak the word, the word of God in the face of opposition. I think that's very, very important. And I want to just, before I come on to what's happened after them and is happening to us, I want to ask us, are you in a place week by week at least where you are praying earnestly with others? I break my heart that um, so many of the churches I, I, I go to or are in my area don't have a midweek prayer meeting. It's interesting, David, you've spoken about people of the last century and the century before, etc. And we think, wow, what zeal. The man who took me under his wing when I was converted was the professor of medicine at Leeds University. I was converted in the Lebanon. I came back to the UK. I went to a church which didn't really preach the gospel. Well, it didn't at all for a while. And then I came across the National Young Life campaign, Young Life. And it was led by Professor Werner Wright. Now... There's no doubt, he, he, there are a few people I would say I've met who are truly, truly great people. I would say he was a truly great person. He was a sinner, and I could tell you one or two of his faults and flaws if I wanted to, but actually he was a great man. He was married, he had eight children, all of whom were born healthily. So he adopted one who had a disadvantaged starting life, so he had nine children. He was a professor of medicine. He was also a physician, regularly, regularly seeing on the NHS patients. He was the editor of three magazines, rheumatological magazines. He was the government advisor on rheumatism and arthritis. He was the founder of United Beach Missions. He was the leader of Leeds Young Life. He was the leading elder of City Evangelical Church in Leeds. He was the most hospitable of people. There were always people around for meals and he always had time for every one of them. He, by being the leader of the Leeds Young Life campaign, he was the leader of a group of about 100 teenagers who were not the mission field. They were not trying to keep these teenagers within the confines of the church, which so much youth work is these days. They were the mission force. He was leading them out week by week. There were three open air meetings a week Every Tuesday at lunchtime, every Thursday at lunchtime, and every Saturday night. And he was always at them. And when he preached, a crowd gathered. When any of us preached, they all scattered. But he, he somehow had this amazing ability to gather a crowd as he spoke. He, um, uh, and then the Young Life group had a, they called it a fellowship meeting on Friday night. But it'd be 100, 120 teenagers. There'd be Bible teaching, etc. And then he'd give loads of us lifts home. I'll tell you about that in a moment. Saturday night, we had a Bible study prayer meeting. And then the open air meeting. In the church there was Sunday morning service, Sunday evening service. And I remember afterwards we used to turn all the chairs around in the Sunday evening service, go out into the streets and invite the young people in for a coffee bar. Wednesday night there was a Bible study and a prayer meeting. This was phenomenal. This was one, yes, a genius of a man. And he had, you know, helps, he had six secretaries full time working for him. So, yes, okay, he had helps that maybe you and I don't. But what an example. But do you know when he took us home, took, I, I lived a few miles outside of Leeds and he would take me and we'd stop in the car and he'd talk to me and then, Roger, you pray before you go in. 
there was this continual sense of dependence upon God. Wednesday night church um, uh, prayer meeting, Saturday night young life prayer meeting, before the open air meetings, prayer meetings, when we were one to one together, prayer meetings, when we go to his home, there'd be prayer. Amazing. Or a similar example is, I think, what we saw earlier from Netherside Hall and um, Yorkshire Camps. So they started, because of the Yorkshire Camps, they started every Monday night from 8pm till 9pm, a weekly prayer meeting. And I was really pleased to go to that, where they were really doing business with God. There'd only be six or seven, but every Monday I could be there, I'd be there. On the dot, eight o'clock they started, and they finished a few minutes normally after nine. And, you know, there was never a gap in the prayers. And there was this most earnest, intense praying for the camps. But Netherside Hall, praying that somehow, Lord, no money's coming, we haven't got money, is there some way, etc. And then it was sold and our hearts went down a little bit. Oh, and then some sales had fallen through, so we carried on praying. And Oh, then it was sold again. Oh, but he'd fallen through again, <laughs> he carried on praying. And then last February, now Andy didn't say this, but the trust which bought it and handed it over is not a Christian trust. And they bought it. Christian trusts weren't willing to support for whatever reason. But a non-Christian, there are Christians involved in it, don't misunderstand. But a non-Christian trust bought it. And I just couldn't get my head around this. I just thought, you know, for two years I've been praying. And I've prayed earnestly, but I didn't think the Lord would ever provide like this. But he has. And even now it almost moves me to tears. And they found that... The water pipe from Netherside Hall to the nearest village, which is about a mile away, runs under the road where lorries are going, regularly bursts up, and it belongs to Netherside Hall. They're responsible for it. Well, that could cost thousands to be repaired. So they get in touch with Yorkshire Water. Now, the word Yorkshire doesn't normally give the idea of generosity. Yorkshire Water Authority. Can we talk to you about this? And they explain the situation. Any chance that you would take it over for us? They said, we've never done that before. But give us a few days. And sometime later they get a letter, we'll take it over. And then the floods come. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and they're responsible. And I could go on and on. We have seen, with, I'm a trustee, so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm involved in this. We have seen the most amazing answers to prayer. But there's been prayer. Here are these Christians under persecution. And don't misunderstand. I, I support the Christian Institute and Christian Concern. So please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But they didn't say, right, we're going to challenge this legally. They prayed. And then they proclaimed. And we'll see they prayed again. And I, I would just beg us, make sure we're going week by week by week to prayer meetings, where there's earnestness, where there's prayer, where there's passion, where there's dependence. And yes, as David said, they're not just trivial things. I'm sure if you've got a bunion on your big toe, it's, it, it needs prayer. But not in every prayer. You know, let, let's pray that a John bunion would be raised instead of that. You, you've got the idea. <laughs> let, let's pray about big issues, the things that really matter. Well, what happened after this? Well, the history of the church is the history of persecution. And if you're like me, you've read the history of the church, you've, you know, generally, I don't know the details, say David knows, but nevertheless, you've read it and you're challenged, you think, wow, this is amazing, what has happened in Eastern Europe and the Christians in certain Gulf countries and the Far East, North Korea, wow. 
And is this starting to come our way? We have experienced a very unusual 150 years in the UK. But to use, I think it was Peter's word, or it may have been Jonathan's, what we're beginning to experience now is normality as far as Christianity is concerned. Who said this? If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you, no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. You know who said it, but we've read it for years. And it's sort of just glossed over us, hasn't it? We've, we've, we sort of glaze. Oh, yes, wow, that's, that's so true for some people. And now it's beginning to come our way. So Paul, a doctor of the law and philosophy, respected member of the Sanhedrin, revered Jewish leader, a man who'd made it and is confronted, met by the Lord Jesus Christ. And sometimes, sometime later, in Philippians chapter 3, as we would now say, he wrote, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And, would we say this? And the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. The early Christians in the first and second centuries were people who hazarded their lives for the sake of Christ. They were despised. And, and I don't like that. You know, I don't like the idea of going to prison or being persecuted. But I don't like the idea of being despised. Previously, for the, you know, the early part of my Christian life, you were sort of respected for being in the ministry or even just being a Christian. But now, despised. They were an illegal group. At any moment... Imperial Rome may have come their way and attempt to crush them out of existence. Many of them had to worship secretly. They were thrown to the lions. We know that, but just stop and let your mind think what that meant. What was going on in their minds and their imagination and their emotions before they suffered as they did. They were burned at the stake. They were crucified. If you've never at least read bits of, you should read Fox's Book of Martyrs. Think of the missionaries of the 18th and the 19th century. They gave up all that the world values. And yes, they were persecuted. They left homes and loved ones. I read this biography a couple of years ago of Bishop Hannington. Married. With four sons, I read this and I thought, was he doing the right thing? But I, 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 I'm not even worthy to question him. He left his wife and four sons and went as a missionary to Uganda where he suffered so much and eventually 
was eaten by cannibals. And we say, oh, no, 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 I need another night in with the children. We do, don't misunderstand, but you get that sort of switch of priorities and emphases in our lives. Those missionaries often went on hazardous, long journeys that took months to get to their place they were aiming for. They left the relative security of the West with its system of justice. They faced hunger and imprisonment and flogging. They were accused of being foreign devils. They gave up the prospect of salaried jobs. They accepted that they would live on a pittance, but they didn't ask how much they would live on. They just knew that's what it would be. They went to places where there were no doctors or pharmacists, no medical scientists. They, can, they, 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 they just lived with rugged hardship day after day. And we're frightened because somebody may stop us, question us, oppose us, write letters against us, ridicule us, ruin our reputation. Frederick the Great once called his generals together, but one of them, Hans von Zeiten, had duties to perform at his church and was responsible for getting ready for communion. So he refused to come. Later, he was again invited to dine with the generals and Frederick the Great. And on that occasion, they all made light of him. And they joked about his religious duties and about the need for him to be at the Lord's Supper. Eventually, von Zeiten stood up and said to his intimidating ruler, to Frederick the Great, and I quote, My Lord, there is a greater king than you, a king to whom I have sworn allegiance even unto death. I am a Christian man. And I cannot sit quietly as the Lord's name is dishonoured, his character belittled, and his cause subject to ridicule. With your permission, I shall withdraw now. There was silence, and all the generals knew that such a daring act could result in death. But Frederick the Great was so struck by von Zeiten's courage that he begged him to stay And he promised him that he would never again demean those sacred things. Well, long live the Hans von Zeitens of the world, but it could have gone the other way. And whichever, whichever, I dare us to be people who have our principles, who stand, whatever the cost. We talked about Armenia. I have... In our lounge, or Dot and I have, I think she puts up with it and I enjoy it, but I have a picture exactly the same size as the Wesley one there of a boy. He's seven years of age. He was my mother's cousin. And um, he witnessed his father's throat being slit during the Armenian genocide. He witnessed his mother being killed. An aunt took him in. And he witnessed her throat being slit and thrown into the river. And he was captured by Turkish troops. But the British army was coming near. And this little seven-year-old boy, Joseph, overheard them talking and saying, we need to get rid of Joseph. If they find us with an Armenian orphan, we'll be in trouble if the British get us. We'll kill him tomorrow. So age seven... He had a little bag round his neck in which he had the game of jacks and he had another bag in which he had dice and he has in his hands in this photograph the shoes that he's carrying because he doesn't want to wear them out so he's barefoot and that night he fled. 
Why was this persecution going on? Well, it was against the Christians. This was a very evangelical family. And he'd lost everything. And he fled. And the photo was taken on the day that the British troops found him and took him into an orphanage. And the orphanage took a photo of him. It's this big picture. And the look of terror in this little boy's face. Well, eventually... Uh, I never met him, though. I've met his sons and grandsons. He went on to be a dentist and a tailor in Argentina. But when children are made to suffer. But you say, Roger, all these things are a long time ago. Do these things, do we have to bear this price of discipleship today? Professor David Gooding, brilliant classicist, and a Bible scholar who's written wonderful commentary on Luke's Gospel and also on Hebrews. Professor David Gooding was offered the first professorship for him because he was just, uh, just, he was senior lecturer at uh, Queen's University Belfast in theology. He was offered the professorship at Queen's University. Sorry, at, 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 at Oxford University from Queen's. He went through the interview and they offered him the job. And they added, but... Dr. Gooding, we would just like you, if you don't mind, tone down a little bit your evangelical convictions. He looked them in the eye and said, I will accept no gag, and got up and walked out. If I told you who I'm talking about now, you'd all know the name. A leading evangelical took Dr. Werner Wright on one side and said, Werner, if you would just stop preaching in the open air, they'd make you a professor very, very quickly. You should by now have been professor. And he said, what does it matter about being a professor? Well, eventually he became professor and continued to preach in the open air. There is something more important than what even the world, whom we respect and we pray for governments and those in authority over us, but there is something more important. What happened then? What happened throughout history? But let's just end by thinking about what's happening now. Because we have prayed over the years, haven't we, for persecuted Christians. I pray every day for the Christians of North Korea, the Christians of the Gulf countries and Pakistan and Bangladesh and Central African states. I pray for them. But now the pressure is on us to be silent. And it is difficult when trouble comes our way. As with dear Mike Meller, open air missioner for some years, with... Um, I was with him and a few others in Bournemouth. I was doing a mission down there. I was free on the Saturday afternoon. I knew they'd got an open-air meeting, so I went down. And I was just with them. And uh, there was a guy on the, the soapbox, which they had, or I think there was on the steps, actually, and he was speaking. He was a little bit more aggressive than perhaps I would be, but there we are, there are different ways of proclaiming the gospel. He never mentioned sex or homosexuality at all. There was no mention of it. He was speaking about Jesus. A guy walked by and just shouted, Well, I'm going to hell because I'm gay. And the chap on the box turned and said, There is no reason for anyone to go to hell. God loves you and Jesus died for you. Five minutes later, the police came and they stopped the meeting and they said, You've been accused of being homophobic. There was a crowd, actually. They could have asked any of the crowd, Can you just tell me what's, what's been said? Because there was no mention of anything like that. 
And they talked for quite a while and then said, if there's another accusation, we will have to arrest you. And they then said, uh, Dorset Police has three priorities. Stamp out homophobia, stamp out racial prejudice, and stamp out domestic violence. I promised myself at that moment, if ever I did turn to shoplifting, which I have no intention of doing, I'm going to do it in Dorset because they wouldn't be interested in me. But, um, But the times have changed. Now, maybe Peter's right. Maybe there is a little bit of cause for a little bit more optimism at the moment. But things are being said. Accusations are being made. There is a genuine fear amongst the atheistic elite of religion. Dawkins says we're dangerous. There's a fear of radicalization, and we fear that, don't we? People talk now about mindfulness and diversity, etc. And we won't go into all the political ramifications. But those who are working in public employment, civil service, education, NHS, social services, they are under immense pressure to be silent. I told the Ceausescu story when I was at that church, St. Peter's in Harold Wood, over Sunday lunch. I was with the vicar and his wife and a few others. And um, a health visitor said, you know, I'm visiting a man who's dying and he's petrified of death, but I didn't speak to him about Jesus. A school teacher in a Church of England school in Sheffield said to me, if I say anything about Jesus, I would lose my job. Times have changed and yet, atheistic lecturers can stand up and say what they want. Paul Hinton's son, Chris, went to Birmingham University as a fresher five years ago, and he was given by the university an atheistic book, as was every other student at Birmingham. And we've got the idea that, oh, you've no choice, you've just got to go along with it. Why? Do you know, when... When the homosexual marriage thing was going through, I hoped and wished that the Queen would have refused to sign that bill. The King of Belgium abdicated the day before he was due to sign the bill to bring in abortion. He said, I cannot do that. He abdicated. And the day after it was signed, in his absence, he was reinstated. I just longed that the Queen would have done something like that. But people say, oh, she had no choice. She had no She doesn't have choice. In a moment, though, we, we are presented before God, the ultimate authority, and the issue is, have we obeyed him? Now, the issue on Calvinism and Arminianism, we've talked a little bit about it. And to be honest, in many ways, it doesn't bother me that much as long as people are evangelising. But it is quite interesting, I think, in the last three or four years, if I'm going to be very honest, I think it's because of John Piper primarily, but he's influenced some key people in the UK. And there is a new Calvinism that is saying, oh, well, God is going to save who will save, and those he's not going to save, they won't save. And I think it's trying to let us off the hook a little bit. We are to speak, we are to share. And I love the attitude, and I, earlier on in the, the few days we've had together, I mentioned it as well as praying, Lord, would you lead me to people with prepared hearts? Would you lead me to people to whom you're speaking? But there is something in me as well, Lord, I'm not bothered whether they've got prepared hearts or you're speaking to them. I'm told to preach to every creature, and whether they're as hard as nails or not, I just want to share something. And who knows, my sharing might just 
that the first thing that God uses to soften them. I do think we've got to be careful about theological systems which excuse us and allow us to be silenced. Intimidated by our own brothers and sisters and theological systems, it could be just as we're, I think, in danger of being intimidated by governments, etc. The spirit of Eliab. Do you remember him, David's older brother, who came and said, why are you being frightened by Goliath? Isn't God on our side? Oh, just go back and look after those little sheep. That spirit has come our way. And what is to be our response? Well, it's really going over some of the things we've heard from several others over the last few days. We are under marching orders. We are to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. (sighs) Have you ever prayed that you'd be like Balaam's ass? Some of you would find it easy. Anyway, uh, no, no. (laughs) He was beaten, but he spoke. He did. He, he, <laughs> if Balaam's ass can speak when he's been beaten, you get the idea. Old New Testament, woe is me if I preach not the gospel. We're under marching orders. The love of Christ constrains us. We thought about this and Paul dwelt on this a little. Let me give you a quotation from Charles Haddon Spurgeon. What, what a blessing he is. Dot and I tried to read morning and evening each day. Oh. Marvellous stuff. Dot doesn't like me using the, the old English, but I love the, the ests and thous and thuses and etc. But anyway, we, we read morning and evening. Uh, the truest reward of our life's work is to bring dead souls to life. I long to see souls brought to Jesus. It should break my heart if I did not see it. Men are passing into eternity so rapidly that we must have them saved at once. Brethren, we, uh, can we bear to be useless? Can we bear to be barren? Can we be barren and yet still content? We can't, can we? And Billy Bray, who we've heard of uh, already this week, that wonderful quotation, if they put me in a barrel, I'll shout glory, hallelujah, out of the bunghole. Let's be people who speak despite the pressure that's on us. And then we are to obey God rather than man. This is our Father's world. On Boxing Day, Leeds and of course many other places in Yorkshire and Lancashire and Cumbria were flooded. The people who left their Christmas celebrations to go and deal with the floods, the emergency services, but the volunteers who pulled out all the stops. Why? Because the flooding was was. It was horrendous. I've lost my car because of the floods. I didn't lose anything else, but lost my car. You know, it was bad. But the people who came to assistance. But these are folk who are going to hell. They're all around us. When the Puritans were threatened, they used the phrase, we can die. We need, again, a sort of baptism of fearlessness, both towards men and God. That doesn't mean we're impolite. It doesn't mean we're harsh and hard. And I was glad that Peter sort of emphasised the gentleness. That was beautiful, wasn't it? That passage from Acts chapter 3. And it came home very forcefully to me. But nevertheless, to be bold and yet winsomely bold. And then I want to say as well, let us be people who pray. Let us pray to be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
That's what these people did. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. This is post-Pentecost. But they prayed they'd be filled with the Holy Spirit and with boldness. As D.L. Moody said, I leak. (laughs) Therefore, we need this continual filling. Lord, fill me afresh. Empower me again. Give me boldness to winsomely proclaim the gospel. And let us ask God to give the increase. I think persecution is inevitable for all those with genuine faith. But silence isn't inevitable. We must speak. I'm certain of heaven, don't misunderstand. But I sometimes thought, Lord, if I was to go to hell, would you at least give me the favour of being able to continue to speak about Jesus? Because I want to do that. And I don't want anybody... I don't want the metaphorical fires of hell or the floods to silence me. I want to keep on speaking. There is only one thing matters in this passing world of sin that our lives should tell for Jesus and be of some account for him. They threatened them, so they prayed and they proclaimed and they prayed again. May we do the same.